does God look like? Wes Smith, age nine. How did God make people with dust? And how can he be in more places at one time? Caleb Christensen, age six. Who are God's parents? And what does it mean when you say being the hands and feet of Jesus? Harper Fike, age seven. When God gave the Holy Spirit, did the disciples really have those floating flames above their heads? Walt Smith, age six. How does Jesus live in our hearts? Parker Fike, age five. Kids ask the best questions, don't they? Most of the time, questions fall into one of two categories. Questions that have definitive answers and questions that don't. There are questions that can be answered with proofs and reason, and then there are questions that remain as wonderings. Some questions lead us to concrete understanding, while some questions, though unanswered, offer us the gift of connection. I think that's what makes the questions of children so important that while they may want an answer or an explanation, they allow themselves to be led by their wondering. Our New Testament scripture this morning asks a lot of questions. So as you hear the word read, I invite you to listen for the questions. Pay attention to who is asking and what they hope to receive in the answers. This is John chapter 9, 1 through 40, selected verses. Listen now for the word of the Lord. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, whose sins so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. The man's neighbors and those who used to see him when he was a beggar said, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is, and others said, no, it's someone who looks like him. But the man said, yes, it's me. So they asked him, how are you now able to see? He answered, the man they called Jesus made mud, smeared it on my eyes, and said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. Then they led the man who had been born blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus made the mud and smeared it on the man's eyes on a Sabbath day. So the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. 
The man told them, He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Some Pharisees said, This man isn't from God, because he breaks the Sabbath law. How can a sinner do miraculous signs like these? So they were divided. Some of the Pharisees questioned the man who had been born blind again. What do you have to say about him, since he healed your eyes? He's a prophet. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner. Here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. What did he do to you? How did he heal your eyes? I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we do not know where this man is from. This is incredible. You don't know where he is from, yet he healed my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. God listens to anyone who is devout and does God's will. No one has ever heard of a healing of the eyes of someone born blind. If this man wasn't from God, he couldn't do this. You are completely in sin. You are born completely in sin. How is it that you dare to teach us? Then they expelled him. Jesus heard they had expelled the man born blind. And finding him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. I have come into the world to exercise judgment so that those who don't see can see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard what he said and asked, Surely we are blind, are we? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Did you hear them? In this passage, we heard 17 questions. Some of them were seeking answers. Some were seeking confirmation of a previously held belief. And some were opportunities for connection. They were ways to look for love in the right places. Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? It's possible that the disciples were genuinely curious seeking to make sense of the tragedy that they witnessed. After all, this was a traditional first century Jewish understanding of the relationship between illness and sin, that disability is a consequence of action. Jesus answers them, and as he does, I just imagine him shaking his head and saying, you're asking the wrong question. Instead, Jesus offers a different perspective on theodicy. He does something kind of rare for Jesus. He does directly answer their question, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. I think it's important to note here what Jesus does not say. Jesus did not say God made him blind so that... Rather, he says, this man's suffering will be used to show the world who God is 
and what God is like. His blindness will be a vehicle through which friends and neighbors will witness both God's power and God's compassion. This man's story will be the locale through which God says, I see you and I care. God will choose to let nothing go to waste. As humans, it seems that we intuitively put people into categories. It helps us identify who we think we can trust and who we cannot. But the criteria for these categories can be a moving target. Too often we create, perhaps subconsciously, images of what it looks like to be someone worth listening to, despite knowing the truth that people and the situations in which they find themselves are almost always nuanced. If the blind man who begs is blind because he deserves it, the disciples can feel better about drawing the circle of who is their people so that this man is excluded from it. Jesus drew his circle wider. In fact, Jesus ensured that the blind man was at the epicenter. The disciples weren't expecting this blind man's story to be a story through which God's character is revealed. Ann Voskamp says, the secret to joy is to keep seeking God where we doubt he is. I wonder how often we draw our circles too small. How quick are we to limit the possibility of authority from people who do not fit a certain profile in our minds? People we automatically count out as capable of goodness. I wonder how often we, like the disciples, miss the opportunity to be guided by the shepherd. The disciples were focused on the wrong question who sinned? For the writer of John's gospel, sin is not a matter of behaviors and consequences. It's not an issue of morality. Instead, we are invited to redefine what we think sin is. We are challenged to see sin not as the bad things that we do, but as our refusal to recognize God's revelation to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And this is where the Pharisees get stuck. The entire Pharisee perspective is based on what is acceptable and what is not, what is permitted, and more importantly, what is prohibited. If one can keep oneself acceptable, that is the way to righteousness. That is the way to earn God's favor. It's not news to most of us that the Pharisees find Jesus' healing on the Sabbath upsetting, to say the least. But if we have a better understanding of biblical law, we learn that there are 39 categories of work which are prohibited on the Sabbath. Categories like cooking and washing and carrying planting and harvesting, and so on. One of these categories is kneading, as in kneading dough to make bread. 
And if we keep going a little further, we learn that the definition of kneading includes combining a powder and a liquid to form a dough or a paste. And how is it that Jesus heals the blind man? He creates paste from dust and spit. I have to imagine that the Pharisees see this not just as you worked on the Sabbath, but as you performed an action that was explicitly forbidden. They had to have seen this as blatant insubordination to God's will. And that's the heart of their problem. They are so focused on what they already know, clinging so tightly to earning their own righteousness, that they fail to see that the one they judge is God's will in the flesh. They are so concerned with the sins committed by the blind man and by Jesus, they fail to see that the true sin is their own blindness to God's presence and mercy at work. And it's happening right in front of them. In the same way that the disciples' questions hindered them from seeing goodness, so the Pharisees' questions kept them from seeing authority. Jesus didn't fit the description of honorable authority. Not only is he without clout, but a rabbi who doesn't even keep the Sabbath? It's unthinkable. So they missed it. They, too, missed the opportunity to experience the goodness and the authority of the shepherd. They were hyper-focused on the wrong questions. How do we know if we're asking the wrong questions? I think it starts with our intentions behind our questions. What are we hoping to accomplish? Are we trying to blame, to control, to reason away something uncomfortable? These might be red flags that we're asking the wrong question. Look at the Pharisees and the string of things that they asked. How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? You were born completely in sin. How is it that you dare to teach us? Surely we're not blind, are we? I'm confident that each of these is rhetorical and that if someone had offered an answer, it would have been found lacking in the Pharisees' eyes. Perhaps the most important question of the entire passage is the final one. Surely we aren't blind, are we? It's the wrong question. They're seeking confirmation of what they already think that they know. It's preposterous for them, for someone to insinuate that they are blind in any sense of the word. They know that they can see. They have the moral high ground. And the question they ask is a vehicle for someone to pat them on the back and to tell them how righteous they are. But what if instead of seeking confirmation, they had asked the right question? How have we been blind? Where was God moving and we just missed it? How can we open our eyes and see better next time? 
if this had been the birthplace of their questions, they would have found love in the right place. For Jesus, blindness is not determined simply by seeing or not seeing, but by one's ability to recognize the revelation of the works of God through Jesus. And in this way, the man who was blind now sees. He recognizes God's revelation. He has experienced it firsthand. And we see in the scripture how his confidence in Jesus grows. His sight becomes more and more clear. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Lord, I believe. The blind man is the one person in the story who doesn't miss the opportunity to be guided by the shepherd. He's experienced both God's authority and God's care through Jesus' action. The blind man trusted Jesus as a sheep trusts as a shepherd. Maybe it's because he didn't have much else to lose. But still, he trusted and proclaimed Jesus' authority. In that moment, I doubt this man was too concerned about the Sabbath laws or what the authorities thought about Jesus. He had experienced the care of the shepherd. And that was enough to lead him to ask the right question. Who is he? I want to believe in him. Our questions aren't intrinsically bad. In fact, our questions have the ability to lead us to connection with Jesus. Maybe our questions aren't means to find answers, but maybe they can still bring understanding. If you ask anyone who's been to seminary, it's likely that they'll tell you that they knew less when they graduated than when they started. Amen. We start out thinking that we know our Bible stories pretty well, and then we get to that first exegesis assignment, and it's game over. We start to see the stories that we've heard our entire lives. We start to see those mean something a little different when we understand the historical context. I still remember reading a book for my Christian doctrines class about the Trinity, which everyone knows is a simple concept. The last line of the paragraph read, got that? No? Good, moving on. (laughs) And that's when I realized that I had stumbled upon the reality of being a theologian. When we accept that some things are just bigger than our human reasoning can handle, it's then that our eyes are open to the mystery and beauty of God's action. I think it's like that by design. I think it's a good thing to have our hubris challenged because it's when we realize that we don't know quite as much as we think we do. We become open to the possibility that God breaks out of anything that we use to try to make God smaller. We start being able to ask better questions, questions that lead us to a truer understanding of who God is and how God acts. So how do we start asking better questions? 
Again, I think it comes back to our intentions. Are we staying curious? Are we open to something that we may have at one time deemed impossible? And most importantly, do we trust the one providing the answer is genuine and truthful? When we have confidence that the one who gives the answer is truthful, it can soften our heart and help prepare us to receive an answer, or at least to lean into the wondering. I recently discovered an app called Be My Eyes. Its purpose is to connect blind and low vision users with sighted volunteers who help them complete everyday tasks and broaden their network of resources, reducing their need to rely on the same friends for every small thing. It works like this. As a volunteer, I'm registered through the app and I can receive FaceTime calls from someone who may need help. They show me what they need help with and I can tell them the expiration date on the milk carton or I can tell them that the input button on the remote is to the left. The app allows me to literally share my eyesight. I wonder what it would look like for the community of faith to function a little more like Be My Eyes, lending our eyesight to each other, helping each other become more aware of God's action in the world, helping each other recognize the ways in which God is revealing God's self to us. We need to remind each other to keep drawing our circles wide to ask the right questions, and to keep looking for God's action in the unexpected places. Amen.